0: This is Current Yield, and I am Jim Grant. On behalf of the usual crew here, we have Eric Whitehead at the control panel. Eric will be vacationing next week, and the week after, we'll get around to that in just one moment. Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grants sitting directly across from me, and uh, joining us today also is John Delberto, who wants to sell you a subscription to Grants. He wants to do that a lot, and I want him to do that too. Uh, Before we get into introducing Carl E. Walter, I want to uh, say a couple of words about our highly well-traveled engineer, Eric Whitehead. Now, Eric, as you know, constant listeners know, is is mostly partial to vacationing in formerly communist countries. Uh, North Korea was an especially uh, favorite destination of Eric and his family. Uh, They insisted on going, oddly enough, in uh, in February at Pyongyang and uh, uh, to the Days Inn motel there. Uh, They went... uh, on uh, Monday, which I think was their mistake because they don't serve food on Mondays, they have no food, right? Yeah. But this time, Eric, you're going to Tanzania, no? Yeah, for two weeks. So, Evan, what's the equivalent? in weeks, New York weeks, for two weeks in Tanzania. Is it is it shorter or is it longer? Oh, much longer. Yeah, so it's like a three-week vacation. Yeah, in right?
1: New York minutes, very, very short.
0: Yeah, so Eric is taking the equivalent, let's call it a five-weeks vacation by taking a 14-hour flight to Tanzania, which may become, in fact, a communist country during his during his vacation there. So good luck to you, Eric, on that vacation, yeah. So joining us, as I mentioned, is Carl Walter. Now, Carl is, uh, I'm not going to say that his, uh, his principal uh, accomplishment in life was... Uh, uh, was talking at a grants conference. All of that certainly is not down there on the resume. But uh, uh, Carl, <laughs> Carl, I mean, where to begin? Had a PhD from Stanford, a graduate certificate from Peking University, 20 years and more of financial experience in China, fluent in Mandarin. Uh, was at one point the, uh, uh, the China chief operating officer and chief executive officer of the subsidiary of a bank called J.P. Morgan. Uh, had done some, a lot of investment banking. In fact, ground breaking investment banking with Credit Suisse First Boston in China. And uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, Carl, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today. Thank Welcome. you
1: very much, Jim. It's nice to hear your voice again.
0: Yes. Uh, well, Evan Lorenz is, among other things, a staff sinologist. You're an expert in China, right, Evan?
1: Uh, in as much as anybody in Manhattan can be.
0: Yeah. So um honor to the first qu- question of Carl E. Walter goes to Evan
1: Lorenz. So Carl, if I have my facts straight, um, you got your M.A. in economics in Beijing University in 1980. That makes you one of the first seven American graduate students to study in China after the collapse of the Maoist revolution. So you were in China in the 80s uh, as the economy opened up under Deng Xiaoping. In the 90s, you actually took some of the big state-owned companies public. In 2012, you wrote perhaps the definitive book on what's wrong with China's system. And you consult with companies and individuals uh, and you go back to China frequently. As you talk to people, you look at your contacts and you just look at the economic elites. W- what is your sense of What's happening in China today, and kind of what is the sentiment of people when you talk to them?
2: I think the sentiment, largely one of just getting on with, but if you look at the bigger picture, I mean, I feel like when I go there anyway, I feel like I've gone back to the beginning. You've, met, you've done a nice introduction. I started off a long, long time ago, but I'm still alive. Uh, but back back then it was like going to Pyongyang, and uh, uh, like Eric has done. And, and now it's, it's very, very different, but in some ways it's very much the same. I can remember very well the first Western TV show on Chinese television. It was a fifteen minutes short of Disneyland. Now you can't now the people over there don't even know what's going on in Hong Kong. There's absolutely I just got back last last Saturday. They have no idea what's going on in down in Hong Kong. I've sent pictures around to people, and they're shocked. Oh, so I sort of feel like uh, back then nobody had any idea what was in the outside world, and now, You know, 40 years later, it's still the
0: same. Wall Street, Carl, we call that a round trip. Sometimes it's it's good, sometimes it's a
2: round trip. Exactly.
0: Uh, Carl, tell us uh, what you expect or what one can expect, perhaps, from this weekend's G20 meeting with uh, our president and their president, uh,
2: Boy, oh, boy. It seems to me there's so much at stake for uh, President Xi. There's so much at stake, I can't really expect anything to come of all this. I mean, he has got such a case of hubris. There are so many things going wrong right now, it seems to me, on his uh, docket. You know, there's, you've, got, you've got Hong Kong, like I just mentioned. You've got this trade war with the U.S., there's a there's a whole pile of other things that are
0: just Yeah, organ harvesting. Yeah, it's not organ for, harvesting. Why don't
1: why don't we why don't we go out. through the the list of the big things going wrong that that's impacting Xi right now? Because I think that'd be a good way to frame kind of the conversation going forward. Do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? You know it better than All I do. I just so,
2: so <laughs> yeah. are you sure? I'm not so sure. You <laughs> know, frankly Frankly speaking, I think I would have rather stayed in New York all these years and been a China expert. And having gone to China all these years and become what the hard way. <laughs> so when <laughs> you've got the trade war, uh, you've got Hong Kong, um, you've got an economy that seems to be bumping slowly down. You've got a huge debt problem that you're trying to bury. You've got even people in Europe who are getting very upset. You've got you've got these tariffs that are tearing apart maybe one of the one or two of the only decent companies in the entire country. So uh, uh, there's a lot of things, I think. Plus, people aren't very happy about all his, all his little resorts down there in the South China Sea. So he's really created a lot of problems for himself. It's quite a honey-do list.
0: Well, tell us, uh, not to seize on the journalistically trivial or the licentious or the uh, scandalous, but Carl, do tell us about these sweet little resorts.
2: Well, I mean, I'm talking about the island. Uh, the, the, since they can't seem to build a very good uh, or enough uh, aircraft carriers, why don't they just turn those islands into aircraft carriers? So you made all those people down there unhappy with China, that's so. all. Okay.
0: Okay. Hey, Evan, let me interrupt this flow of of question and answer. And uh, Carl, forgive me for one moment. I'm going to plug our fall conference. This is purely self-serving, but in the trade, it's called an advertisement. And uh, I'm I'm looking down and here on our our house ad for the conference. And we have everything in this ad except the darn date. Well, it's it's October 23rd, right? Eric? Yeah? You're going to check it. This is some kettle of fish Ladies and gentlemen, you were the first to see one of the great howlers in the world of advertising. In this small world of our advertising, we don't give the date to the conference. Now, where's a head to chop off? John, you'll do. OK. No. You didn't do it. <laughs> you didn't. But Anyway, it's October 23rd. 20- 23rd. Yes. As I thought. Anyway, uh, we're having a fall conference, even though we think we're not. And uh, Seth Klarman is going to be there. And um, so is, uh, is Ann Dias and David Rosenberg, and um, I'm going to be there as well, Peter Ciappinelli of uh, GMO and uh, Martin Hale of Hale Capital Partners. But uh, one of the uh, highlights of this conference to be held on October 23rd is I'm going to debate Bill Dudley, the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And it's uh, something like resolved post-crisis monetary policy is a failure. That's kind of the proposition before the House. Do you think we ought to just switch sides? Dudley ought to attack it for moral hazard, for the misallocation of resources, for the perpetuation of zombie companies, for the manipulation of the most sensitive prices in capital that is sure to yield to bigger trouble down the road. He ought to take that side.
1: It would make it more interesting. He should know where the bodies are buried. Right.
0: And I'll take the side. No, no, I'll take the side. I'll take Bill's conventional side, which is this has been swell. You're giving yourself the heavy lifting. No, this is easy. I could
1: could make a great case for this. Don't you just set the point to the Dow Jones Industrial Average?
0: Right. Don't you like the stock market to go up, you idiot? <laughs> anyway, again, the conference is on October 23rd. <laughs> you got to be there. All right. Thank you. Now, as you were saying, Evan.
1: Um, Carl, w- one thing that's dominated the uh, press here is kind of the failure of Baosheng Bank. Now, Baosheng is kind of a rounding error in terms of the uh, Chinese financial system. I think it's like $80 billion worth of assets in a financial system of $40.1 trillion. China's banking system is bigger than anything the world's ever seen. It's about 47% of world GDP, and it's twice the size of the American banking system. And this little tiny bank that failed seems to have seized up the wholesale funding markets there. I- I'd love to kind of understand, <laughs> is this kind of just an anomaly, or do you expect more of this to happen? And how precarious is China's financial system?
2: It scared everybody because they're not the only one. I mean, they're the only, they're the one that couldn't hold it together in the end. But there's but there's tons. You know, I, I try to I've been trying recently anyway. It's really completely must be because I'm obsessive compulsive and extreme. Trying to figure out why how many banks there are in China, and supposedly there are 134 of these city commercial banks, 134, of which this is one. And all of these guys, all of these guys use wealth management products or borrowed in the interbank market to fund, you know, local local things, or they use their they borrowed in the interbank market and borrowed to wealth management products to support local asset management companies to hide other other banks' bad loans. I don't think it's unique. And I think the reason the markets are scared is because everybody knows that the Emperor has no clothes. There's a lot more than just the one.
0: Carl, could you tell our listeners what a wealth management product is? Wealth
2: management products started off, I think, not long after, not long after the global financial pro- crisis broke out, and they were used to move bad loans. This is my view: my move, move bad loans off a of bank balance sheet so they could have a better NPL ratio. What they are is they're, they're sort of an asset. They're, they're they're sort of a fund. They're made up of non-standard loans, government bonds, regular loans, stuff like this. Uh, and sold to retail customers, and uh, they they're generally supposed, they're supposed to be off the balance sheet.
0: So this is this is a yield product. No, it's an income product. Absolutely, yes, I hate, this, I hate right. this word product. It sounds like actually something that's like sounds like iron ore or something. So no, this I, I thought this
2: what you put in your hair, myself.
0: Yeah, <laughs> this
1: this actually sounds a little bit like um, the structured yeah, investment wall. vehicles or conduits that a lot of U.S. banks got in trouble with in two thousand and seven. If you remember yeah. that, if you remember then, banks would have these off-balance sheet vehicles where they would lever up pretty heavily in the repo market, and they'd sell them to other people as kind of a yield play. And the thing is, they work great because banks would collect the income; they didn't report the assets, so their leverage looked great, and somebody else could actually collect, you know, income off this whole structure. The only problem is, once the assets started turning bad, they blew up, and by the end of two thousand seven, the Civ conduit structure had kind of collapsed. They
2: didn't even have a conduit structure; these are just straight off bank balance sheets. Now the CBAE IRC is forcing banks to set up subsidiaries to do this business, and they're forcing banks to stop guaranteeing it. So these are all supposedly going to be off-balance sheet, and the banks are supposedly not going to make customers good. Most, I think the, the deal about the WMPs there is everybody believed, no matter how bad, how bad the junk in the, in the uh, product was, uh, how bad the assets that were stuffed in there were, that the government would step in and make them whole. So there's a tremendous amount of moral hazard. And largely speaking, that has been true, I think.
1: Well, it's not the fault of the average Chinese saver, because as soon as any of these have gone bad in the past couple of years, you see protests in Beijing or other financial cities, and all of a sudden the authorities make people whole. It seems like right. the problem always gets swept under the rug.
2: Exactly. So, so I mean, the government's totally, uh, whether it's this or whether it's Baoshang Bank or it's Jinzhou Bank, the government is very concerned. Well, it will not, nothing can be allowed to fail. Everything must be nice and safe. And uh, stable, stable is the word. So, I,
1: I guess the interest to us is not so much one small Chinese bank or you know 134 small Chinese banks, but what it means to the Chinese financial system and the Chinese um, you know economic model. Is there anything to read into this, or anything that indicates that this might be a turning point for China? You
2: know, I think you know, I've thought a lot about this since uh, since that uh, silly book came out ten years ago, and I think the the answer to that is is long. You can. And I think the book said it is you cannot expect China to open up or make its capital account open or make it from be convertible as long as this situation exists. Because as we saw a couple of years ago, once they start loosening up on the capital account, money flows out like a son of a gun. So uh, it it may go back ultimately, but in the meantime, it's going to go out and cause wreak havoc. So I think the principal consequence is you're going to have this big balloon there. And that's it.
0: You mentioned uh, the book, which, by the way, is not silly, nor is it little, but it did come out the better part of 10 years ago. It reminds me that time does fly. And that, oh boy, uh, is it
2: ever.
0: I'm not sure how long you bearish on China. What, 50 years? Well, at at least least. 60, yeah. Anyway, uh, so when is the denouement? Is it uh, in the lifetime of an ordinary, healthy, middle aged person? Or uh, do you have any sense about this? I mean, we're not getting impatient, but we would like to know, Carl, when does this end?
2: lifetime left myself. so you know what can I say? I, I don't know how it's going to end nobody knows how it is. boy I wish I, I wish I knew I could be a millionaire and live in Jackson hole all year long but, but I, I really really can't say it's, the main point is if the People's Bank had gotten their way and you'd opened up on all these things they liberalized the interest rates so you got you created wealth management products so you could you could attract uh, depositors. you you want to open up the capital account. you saw what happened when the capital account opened up and then they closed it again. Uh, nothing, I there's no way in the world that things like that are going to happen in China in your lifetime, my lifetime, or anybody's lifetime, as long as the party's in control. No way. Yeah.
0: Hey, Carl, tell us about uh, how Hong Kong figures into all of this. Oh, gosh.
2: Yeah, this, it's sort of the same thing, right? I mean, the reason nobody knows what's going on in Hong Kong up in China is because they don't want to give anybody ideas. You know, it's, it's commonly said, or people commonly say, well, those honkies, they all have such a sweet and easy life. There's nothing... They have law, they have honest police, you know, they have good jobs so they have a really terrific economy and all this kind of stuff. Why do they bellyache so much? <laughs> but, but on the other hand, you guys are striking for something that's really worthwhile. I really admire them. But if you can't really show that in China, because it might be especially, especially this month, you know.
0: <laughs> Is there capital flight from Hong Kong yet or if not? You expect? So I think be.
2: there has been. I think it's, it's been a lot of uh, Hong Kong capital flight to Taiwan. I mean, you should think about what the impact on of Hong Kong is on Taiwan. And it's going to be really interesting to see what this election has been a result in. But I'd be really surprised if uh, Madam Tsai doesn't get reelected again because people don't want to have happen to them what's happening in Hong Kong.
0: And uh, would you be a buyer, a seller, or a mere observer of the Hong Kong dollar and its peg at this
2: point? Yeah, man, I, I I stay. I buy only U.S. Stuff. <laughs> and they'll stay, I
0: stay yeah. Here. Well, they're they're precarious enough. Yeah.
1: What do you think about Taiwan's impact on uh on I guess U.S. rates? I mean, one thing that I've seen reports on, but I've, I've not researched. But it looks like Taiwan has these little funds that leverage up Treasuries to a great degree, and they've actually been a driving factor at some points in the last year of um, movements in the Treasury curve. If there's a lot of money fleeing Hong Kong to Taiwan, does this mean anything to I, I guess you know the U.S. Wow. You know,
2: Interesting. It's so hard to know what's going on over there because. It's so hard to get information. You try and get information on in anything in China, it's just it's just really difficult combing through stuff. I spend a lot of time on wind and uh, with the help of my buddy Fraser. And uh, in the Stanford Library, going through garbage, and then it's really hard to pin down things. So you're talking about money flows to Taiwan caused by Hong Kong, flying. <laughs> it's just, it just blows my mind. But, yeah, it's totally credible.
0: Hey, thank you, Carl. You know, what that re- you know what that reminds me of, John Delbert? That reminds me of the opportunity that uh, every grant's interest rate observer subscriber has to share articles. Tell us about that.
1: Well, paid up grant subscribers. Yes, they should share articles with their friends, family, and colleagues. Uh, There are are over 35 years of archives. And if you like something in the current issue, you're free to share that as well. Fabulous. How do readers do that? Just click on the um, login and just click on the article share button right under the article.
0: it's 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 funny that uh, most people seemingly are either reluctant to share, which is we've been told that in kindergarten, right? You have to share or I don't know how, mm-hmm. but it's as simple as can be, no? Very
1: simple. And you can always call us if you have any questions.
0: You can call John Dalberto. Right? Yes, you may. Okay. Uh, well, care to give them the home,
1: home number too, I'll give you my 646-312-8890. Uh,
0: well, in a way that's John's home number because we like to think that John really makes his, his daytime home here. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, John. Hey, Carl, how can you run an economy if information is so hard to come by? Do
2: you think that the senior leadership of China has any idea what the local government debt is? No, they do not. And moreover, they don't want to know.
1: Can, can I ask a different question? Does the leadership yeah. know what the real economic output of China is? Of course
2: not. I don't think any of these numbers that you see are real. They're fudged. And uh, of course, I think people at the World Bank and IMF would think I, what I'm saying is just uh, ridiculous. But I totally believe that nobody has a clue what's going on.
1: So, Carl, uh, at the very outset... You-
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't hustle too fast by that point, Evan. Um, Carl, is it? I don't know, is, is it possible that this is all a mirage. Let me try this again. Okay, so um, uh, the CIA and all of the American that's, French establishments li- Oh, sorry. Please proceed. Me.
2: So the oh. question was, does the, does the senior leadership of the country have an idea of what its industrial output is, right? right? Or yeah. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: along those lines. Yeah. Um,
2: or what its economic performance is. Or a good guess. Right. And I think the way the Chinese system works... Is that they don't. They don't know. It is a confederation of uh, 34 administrative units, and the guys who run the party or the senior guy in each of these units, the provincial governors or the party secretary, or, or sometimes the guys both, those guys those guys are responsible for what goes, in, goes on in their territorial unit. But beneath them is, are three more administrative levels. This system is not based on telling the truth, okay? <laughs> To the guys above you, you've got to hold the system together. So, so in 2008, if you think that the uh, the, the Ministry of Finance budgetary numbers each year are correct, I would beg to differ. Uh, and I think if you read a lot of the a lot of some or at least some academic writing or or talked even to Christine Wong, who's the only person I know that does the fiscal system, then then you then she will then you will find that in fact the fiscal system is much much bigger but it's much much bigger on debt. So when when China says that its debt is only like 3 or 4% of its uh, of its budget, that's wrong. Uh you have to debt only takes in the central government budget. You have to look into the whole country budget. So what I'm saying is once you start going down into the provinces or the autonomous zones and so on and level by level, the farther you and when you start moving it, the farther it is you get from reality.
1: One thing we've seen, and you, you said that uh, you see growth slowing this year. Nobody knows what growth is, but it appears to be slowing. Every time that it's slowed in the past, the authorities have one response, which is precisely turn on the spigots and lend as much right. as possible. We saw that in 2009, right. we saw that in '16, and in other years as well. Do you think China is going to push for another giant stimulus? And if so, what is that going to look like after a decade plus of just extraordinarily easy money, flooding the system with cash, and a banking system that, again, is the largest in the world, twice the size of the well. U.S.?
2: The banking system, right? Take it apart a little bit, and, and you, you can't just say, all right. Well, before, if this was 1997, 98, you said, well, the banking system's the biggest in the world, and they're, what we're really talking about is the big four state banks. Uh, that is no longer the case. And back in 97, they, they accounted for loans. around 95% of lending. That ain't true anymore. They're only 38% total total bank financing. So and and just for stuff?
1: just for the listeners, um, Chinese big four banks are ginormous. They're bigger than any bank in the United States. They all well, have balances huge, over two trillion. Uh, dollars they're, they're but giant. But they're
2: not like Citibank or J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo or whoever you want to talk about. They're confederations. They are not consolidated managed entities. If you can understand what I mean, these branches that run the broad provincial uh, geographies in China are like independent kingdoms. They really uh, run. They run the show in their in their region.
0: Who manages who manages credit risk uh, for the organization? Theoretically,
2: theoretically, I, I believe that these head offices try and manage credit risk, but you don't don't have a system in any of these big banks that can see through all the levels down to the bottom. You know, like any Chinese organization, they have hundreds of subsidiaries and branches, and they don't have systems that allow you you or them to see down to the bottom. There's no transparency. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, when I worked for J.P. Morgan, the guys in New York knew exactly what was going on in Beijing on the balance sheet there every day because there was so transparency a, is, all
0: the way through. This is a so-called centrally planned economy without any central I've knowledge. I've never
2: met a Chinese who believed in planning. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like that?
0: <laughs> Are those personal predilections or uh, no, macroeconomic? Well,
2: you ever met anybody who likes a budget? <laughs> does, it, does anybody? All right, do you ever does it, do you ever talk anybody who's a, who's a China expert to talk about China's fiscal system or budget? No, you don't. I don't believe it. Nobody talks well, to it.
0: I'm still trying to think about the uh, your remark earlier, Carl, in which you said that you were, were trying to count up the number of banks in China, and then we interrupted you. Did you ever get to the number? Uh, I
2: have a number, but I you know supposedly there are 134 city commercial banks, of which this Baoshang Bank was one of them. Right. Same with ginjo uh, I talked. I mentioned to Evan. Uh, there are supposedly 134 of them, but right now, when I when I do all this, I come up with 159. <laughs> so I don't really know why that's the case. But if you add all of these together, along with rural commercial banks, of which there are—hang on—rural commercial banks, there's 1,427 rural cooperative banks, these are all small banks, but they're not meaning. All these guys basically have a balance sheet with bonds on them. That's all. And then for the and for these city commercial banks, they may be small, but they are financed either through wealth management products or by borrowing. Then if you look at the shareholding banks, the twelve shareholding banks that we all sort of know, like China Merchants banks, now you're getting sort of into the into reality again, these guys don't have any deposits at all. They live by the interbank market. So where's the deposits? The deposits are all in the big five city banks or big big five state
1: banks. So Carl, th- so you're saying most of the banking system is not like a bank that we know, which is something that takes deposits and makes loans. It's um, entities that buy bonds and leverage via the wholesale market or the repo market. How leverage is a typical Chinese bank then? I mean, it sounds more like a bond fund that's using a lot of short-term leverage, which I understand because we've seen that in the U.S. But how leverage are these bond funds that poses banks? Yeah, I really,
2: you know, the, the some of these banks are listed. Some of them are on the Hong Kong. Some of them are on A shares, but not all of them, not a, whole, not a majority. So to do all, to do, to get a handle on this, which I'm sort of trying to figure out a smart way to do, you've got to go down and look. But I believe that even if you look at, uh, let's just take a state bank. So in 2008, when they did the stimulus, and all that money poured into the uh, economy. Where did it come from? It came from the state banks. Where did it go? It went to the SOEs. It went to the other banks. Then where did it go? Well, went to the, all these local governments that built all this infrastructure and so on. It all comes back now as local government bonds. So from an accounting point of view, you go from a bond or, or from, a, from a loan to a shaky to shaky entities to long-term debt through bonds to the same entity. The accounting treatment is completely different, right?
1: Because you don't impair bonds. You only impair bonds when they um, exactly. default.
2: Exactly. Well. I think now there's a new rule, but basically, a loan has a much bigger hit than a bond. All you've done over the last six years is, is shifted loans from short term to long. That was the first step. And Then from long term into bonds. And then you made these bonds like uni bonds in the U.S., so there's no tax on so they have a higher interest rate.
0: Are there advantages to holding a bond with respect to reserve requirements?
2: Yeah, that's is what I'm it, saying. You, know, you don't the, uh... have to reserve against the bonds, whereas you do against loans.
1: And also probably lower uh, cost of capital. Like uh, bonds have a yes, lower risk weight.
2: Assuming we do, yeah, that's right. Have a good cost of capital calculation.
0: Uh, we have been talking with uh, Carl Walter, who is um, a non-pari China expert. <laughs> that's it. and uh, uh, Carl, I, what uh, comes across to me is first and foremost your knowledge, and second of all, your humility in the face of what. We think we knew, but thanks to you talking to you, we now know we don't know. And I'm going to, as a final question, let me ask you to speculate or to perhaps to assign, assign a kind of a number. What percentage of the things you hear asserted about China strike you as on their face, prima facie, wrong, or simply guesswork? What is our deficit of knowledge about this thing that we in America are so readily so 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 quick to take it a a point of view an opinion on. Are we are we all groping in the dark?
2: You know, there's a wonderful book written about the Green Zone in Baghdad. I've forgotten what it is, but it shows you how we all are so ignorant about other countries, and it is especially true about China. Now, it may be, it may be. Well, I've always felt like the guys who work uh, in Washington in the beltway are, are, the, are the biggest offenders they don't really get out at all. And the guys who used to come over for the strategic dialogue also had no clue. They didn't ask the right questions. But this is just a, a function of, I think, normal, I won't say American, but I think anybody. We don't really have a good grasp of what other countries are like. And in a country like China that has a governmental system that has been developed, I mean, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, it has been developed through, I don't know, multiple dynasties over the last 2,000 years. This system's still in place. So when I say things like you have a confederation of provincial branches, that these guys are responsible for their territory, and that below them there are three administrative zones or, or levels, and all those guys work uh, work up, truth gets lost along the way. The only truth that really comes out is when guys like Bao Zhang Bust, or when Jinjo, when the auditors walk away, for Ernst and Young to walk away from Jinjo Bank, that's hitting the door of reality, man. <laughs> because that's not easy to, Usually do that. So, so I think my point is that uh, it's not that we're missing stuff; it's that we we generalize from our own experience. And if you're from right. Kansas, right. you generalize from that. If you're from New York, you generalize from that. And, and so. So even if you go there for three or four weeks every year, it's really hard to stay on top. So uh, I hope that answers your question, or at least responds to it. Anyway.
1: It does. <laughs> Carl. Um One last question for you. I know you don't want to go on the record for when you think China might collapse because everyone's kind of put out a a date and everybody's been wrong so far. But let's say that there's a counterparty that you trust beyond all others, JP Morgan, the Fed, the U.S. Treasury, and they offer you one of two choices. One was a million dollars in renminbi, which at current exchange rate is something like 6.8 million renminbi. And you can get that in 10 years. Or you can get a half a million U.S. dollars in 10 years, you know, half the value of today. Which one do you choose?
2: I take the dollars every time.
1: (laughs) Well, that's saying something. Um, Carl
0: Walder, thank you. It has been uh, wonderful to talk to you, and and to me, at least, I dare say, to many, so enlightening. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, and thank you, Eric, as always, Uh, good luck to you, and wherever you're going. It's uh, what was that, Evan? Was he going to Egypt, right, or no, Tanzania? Uh,
1: Tanzania, yes.
0: Tanzania, and um, Evan, um, uh, as always, uh, it's been a pleasure. John Delberto, thank you, and thank you for telling us about. uh, the unique opportunity of the Grant's reader to share articles. And uh, I want to thank our, our final sponsor, which is Gold. Yeah, we've been sponsored in part uh, by Gold, which yields more, ladies and gentlemen, than about $13 trillion worth of fixed income securities worldwide. And that's thank no you, mean gold. feat
1: because there's only about $8.7 trillion worth of gold out there. and uh, So it's out-yielding $13 trillion of the paper. Well, it's a
0: high-yield asset. Till next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield.